You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. As I was so kindly introduced, I'm uh, Pastor Nathan. I'm a pastor over at Midtown, and uh, I lead Sending There, which is a kind of a weird title, Pastor Sending. What does that mean? I oversee all of our mercy, church planning, and international outreach. And then I, I get to sit as the director uh, helping other churches in, in our collective and missions. Uh, I'm good, good friends with Chris and Amanda Wilson as, as they lead missions here. But we're going to be in, in Philippians chapter 3. As we're diving into this kind of next section of what Paul is doing from Philippians, and we, we were in chapter two, kind of the humility chapter, learning about what we are called to as both Jesus is our model and means for humility. And then as we jump into chapter three, Paul is really starting kind of the last section of the last teaching of the book. And he is calling us and giving us a picture that Jesus is greater. He's greater than anything else that we can know or experience in this life. And you know, when I was uh, growing up, uh, I loved to play sports. And one of my favorite sports was track. I loved to, to run track. And it doesn't look like it now, but I did back then. And um, I loved the story of Eric Little. I don't know how many of you know, have ever watched Chariots of Fire. Let me see hands, Chariots of Fire. Da, 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 da. Do you guys remember that? That epic scene, won an Oscar for Best Picture, won uh, lots of other awards. And a lot of us, we, we remember Chariots of Fire because it was a really well, well-made movie and the soundtrack was amazing. But it, it chronicled the story of a man named Eric Little. And Eric Little in the 20s was considered the, man, the world's uh, fastest man. And Chariots of Fire like, journals the, the preparation of a few men who were getting ready for the Olympics uh, in Paris in 1924. And Eric Little uh, was running the 100-meter dash, or I think it was like the 100-yard dash at the time. It's changed a little bit. And he uh, was supposed to win because, again, he was the fastest man in the world. But as they got to Paris and they looked at the schedule, they realized that his first heat was on a Sunday. And Eric was not only the fastest man in the world, but he was also a devout Christian. And he had this strong conviction that he shouldn't work on a Sunday to honor the Sabbath. So he refused to race. Fastest man in the world. He he's, uh, has an opportunity to win a gold medal. And yet he says no. And he does. He does not run the 100-meter dash. So what he does is he runs the 400-yard dash, not his race. He has not been training for this. But not only does he win gold in the Olympics, he smashes the world record. It's this uh, amazing story of overcoming adversity, standing in your conviction. And uh, the, the movie is famous for this one phrase that Eric Little says. And here's what he says. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And I, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. He's articulating when he uh, lives out the things God has gifted him with, he can feel the pleasure of God. And we, we lean into that, but I want us to go back to the, the first part of that quote. And he says, I believe God made me for a purpose. What was that purpose? Eric's purpose in life, as he believed, was God was calling him to be a missionary. So the untold story of Eric Little is that he was a missionary kid brought up in Northern China by missionary parents and uh, uh, loved Jesus, was devoted to him. And after he won a gold, 
He could have done anything. He could have gone anywhere. He could have been anyone. He was a celebrity before celebrities were big. And yet he chose to set that aside. And he went back to Tianjin, uh, China, in northern China. And he was a missionary. He spent the rest of his days there. He poured out his life for others. He had all that life had to offer, but it was nothing compared to knowing and experiencing Jesus. And the author of our book, Paul, had a similar story. He wasn't a a track athlete. Not that I know of. Maybe he wasn't. He just doesn't talk about it. Um, But what he was, was a a man of uh, religious nature. He had reached the highest degree of religiosity. He was a Jew among Jews. And yet when he looked back on his life, it was as nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And that's what we're looking at. We jump into verse one. We see that Paul starts this section by telling us to rejoice in the Lord. It's really interesting. Paul's like moving from instructions of sanctification in chapter two, how to know and grow to be like Jesus. And then he's going to kind of move into some teachings, but he stops and he says, rejoice in the Lord. And it's really a framework that sets up our passage this morning. In in kind of mid-thought, in mid-writing, he stops us as if to say, remember, do not forget, rejoice in the Lord no matter what life throws at you, no matter what circumstances that you're living in. And friends, this is an invitation to us today that in many ways, our world is on fire. Do you feel that? Like the house is burning and we're trapped inside and we can't get out. That's what 2020 is. The coronavirus continues to spread. Uh, A spotlight is being shined on the racial and systemic oppression that is happening in our nation and has been happening in our nation for 400 years. And all of this is happening, no less, in an election year. It's crazy. 2020 is not what we'd expect. And hopefully 2021 will not be like this. It would be easy to lose hope in the midst of chaos, but that is not the way of the Christian. That's not the way of the Christian life. It's not to lose hope in the midst of chaos. We, like the Philippians, are called to embrace joy even when our world is on fire. Because our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is not found in politicians or people or our plans. Our hope is firmly rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. Now, I know it doesn't always feel that way. When you wake up in the morning or when you look at your checking account or when you're at a distance from your loved ones, it may not feel that way. But we can lean into the truth that our, our hope and our joy and our future is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. And as we dive into our text this morning, uh, we can really face two big questions that Paul lays out before us. Number one, where do we find our righteousness and worth? Number two, what is the goal of our life? So number one, what's the, where do we find our righteousness and worth? And we look at verse two, Paul starts off uh, his teaching here with a clear warning to watch out for the wicked teaching of the Judaizers. Now the Judaizers come up over and over again. If you read the book of Galatians, it's all about those guys. And these guys were kind of enemies of the church. They were, they were tra- traveling men who would go from church to church, write letters, and they were spreading lies that to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. So these Gentiles in Philippi were being told, hey, that's great, you're following Jesus. If you really wanna be a Christian, you have to adopt Jewish cultures and customs. And primarily the custom that these Judaizers wanted them to adopt was circumcision. Now, we're not gonna talk about circumcision. It's an unpleasant topic. Um, But 
Circumcision, if you go back to the book of Genesis, this was the outward sign that God gave to Abraham and the followers of Yahweh, of the followers of God, to show that they belonged to Jesus. It was a mark, or they, or they belonged to God. It was a mark that they were God's people. And these were men who were steeped in the faith like Paul. They, they knew the law. They, they sought to keep the law. And when they uh, heard about Jesus, and maybe when some of them themselves came to faith, they, they didn't want to let go of their traditions. They didn't want to let go of their heritage. And Paul is facing this false teaching head on. But let me ask, what could be so wrong with with adding some customs to our faith? What could be so wrong with adding something to God's grace? And I think you know the answer to that. It's it's deadly. It's a a deadly error. These Judaizers were, were adding to the simplicity of the gospel by saying that salvation was God's grace plus works. And when you add anything to God's grace, you negate it. You negate it. Like most effective lies, their deception looked innocent enough, but it was really a deadly spreading cancer. And this cancerous lie continues today. It has for all of the history of the church. There have been false teaching and false doctrine that have sought to infiltrate the church and to negate God's grace, to take away from, to sidetrack from the simplistic yet beautiful gospel that we have been given. And deep down, there is a part of all of us that longs for this, that we long to earn our favor with God, to earn our way to God. We want to be able to stay on our own two feet, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? It's the American way. Oh, I know that's, that's a little hard to hear, but, the, but that is, it's deep within in, in us. And think about all the major religions of the world, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, cultural Christianity, these are all built in and rooted in the lie that a person can earn their way to God through self-effort. You've probably heard it before. Every major religion in the world is people reaching up, grasping for, trying to stand on top of things in order to get to God. But Christianity, true biblical, grace-centered Christianity is God reaching down for us. More than that, it's God taking on flesh and becoming one of us so that he could die in our place and we could have a right standing with God. That is what makes biblical grace-centered Christianity different. And these Judaizers were seeking to twist the gospel so that they could uh, cast their customs and their their self-seeking, self-righteous demeanor on others. And Paul was so angry because that's the life he came out of, right? He spent his whole life trying to earn merit. And when he experienced the grace of God, it just fell away. And for these men to come in and to, to cast this lie upon the church of Philippi, it got him really angry. Let's, let's read his words again in verse two. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those that mutilate the flesh. So these are three powerful word pictures that Paul uses to describe these Jewish men. He calls them dogs, evil workers or evil doers, and then those who would mutilate the flesh. This is a play on the circumcision. They're not just doing circumcision, but they're literally mutilating the body. Now, I just want to take one of these and show you how offensive this would be for a Jew. So let's look at, watch out for dogs. And this is what we think of when we think about being a dog or or seeing a dog, right? It's a Labrador, it's so cute. You just want to cuddle it, right? Or these uh, Labradoodles. Have you ever seen a Labradoodle? Oh my goodness, so cute. Or maybe if you really like dogs, it's something like this. 
little over the top, no judgment here. But for a first century Jew or a first century Christian, when they heard the word dog, this is what they saw. Dogs were not pets. You know, before I came to Sojourn, I lived overseas as a missionary in South Asia. And on the street, there were these packs of dogs. They had mange, they were starving to death. They would eat the carcasses of dead animals. You would see them in trash heaps eating things. They were dangerous. And when a first century Jew or a first century Christian heard dog, that's what they heard. That's what they saw. So for Paul to to call these Jewish men dogs, there was no greater insult. He was seeking to use offensive language to put these evil men in their places. So when the church of Philippi heard that they were dogs, it was like, ooh, we got to stay away from those people. We would not cuddle them, but we got to stay away from these people. And Paul does this because our righteousness and our standing before God does not come through what we do. It does not come through what we can achieve. It does not come through anything else. Our righteousness before God comes through what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done in our place. What's more, our worth and value are not found in what we can accomplish. Now, I know for most of us, when I say your standing before God can't be earned, you'll say, well, of course not. When I became a believer, it was a gift to me. Yet many of us, me included, we believe a lie that what we do or what we say or how we live or how much we can earn or the prestige we have or the title we have somehow earns merit or favor. But it's a lie. It's a lie that we buy into that our only hope and our only value and our, our truest worth are found in knowing Jesus and being known by Him. And Paul, Paul makes this truth very clear in verse three. Let me read it for us again. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. So Paul's just called these men, these three offensive word plays, right? And he takes another jab at them, just like pops them in the mouth. Because they celebrate the fact that they are the circumcised, that they've taken on this like outward symbol of being God's people. They, they often add extra biblical laws so that they can puff their chest out and so that they can oppress and look down on other people. And Paul tells them that, that the Philippians, that these Gentile people are already the circumcised. Because he flips the script. He, he takes the, the kingdom paradigm And he reminds them that these Philippians are the children of God, not because of their ethnicity or their outward appearance. They are the circumcised people of God because their hearts have been circumcised. This is Paul's own words in uh, Romans as he writes to the church in Rome, chapter 2, verse 28. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. A true and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, A person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So what Paul is is communicating to the church of Philippi and indirectly to these Judaizers is that our standing before God is a heart issue. It's not minor surgery. It's not a surgery of circumcision, but it's an inward change. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means the grace of God through our faith, it enters into our life and and we are literally changed from the inside out. And because we have been made right with God, we have reason to boast. And this is what Paul talks about. 
He says, don't boast in the flesh, don't boast in earthly things, but boast that you know Jesus. Boast in Christ Jesus. And if anyone had reason to boast about who they were or what they had done, it was Paul himself. In verse four through six, he reminds us of his impressive resume, which is always interesting. He does this a couple times in his letters. And I don't know if he is boasting. It kind of sounds like boasting to me, but he says he's not boasting. But either way, it's a, it reminds us of the impressiveness of his former days. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. This means that he was born into the right family and he was born in the right religion. And he, he did everything right, even when he wasn't able to do it. Someone did it for him. He was a, born of the, the tribe of Benjamin. Remember the tribe of Benjamin is the tribe that Saul came out of, the first king. He was also one of Joseph's favorite sons. He was a Hebrew of Hebrew, meaning if there was a Jew out there that was really a Jew, it was Paul. He's a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. We, we know the Pharisees, right? And we, we hear the word Pharisee, we have, instantly have a negative connotation. But for, for Jews in that day, to be a Pharisee was something to be proud of. It was like having a PhD in law keeping. It's very impressive. Paul was so passionate about law keeping. He was so passionate about his faith that it led him to persecute and murder those belonging to a cult called the church. And that's the way he saw Christians, this cult that has infiltrated Judaism. We got to smash them. We got to get them out. And his zeal for God drove him to that. And as he, as he saw the law, he was seen as blameless or without spot. So he gives this long uh, resume of how he's earned and the merit that he has created. But where did all of Paul's morality and law keeping get him? Did it earn him favor with God? Did it somehow uh, establish a relationship with the creator of the universe? No, no. His self-generated righteousness has led to a life of sin, self-deception, and murder. You know, and the same is true for us, right? Maybe we don't, we don't start out to be sinful. Maybe when we do sin, we seek to deceive others and then we quickly start deceiving ourselves. And then we end up in a, a place committing sins that we never thought we could do because sin is a deadly disease. And you look at Paul's life and Maybe you say, I'm not Paul. I, I'm, I'm different than that. My list of sins and self-righteousness are different, but your heart is the same. My heart is the same. You and I can seek self-righteousness in all kinds of ways. We seek worth and value and wholeness, maybe uh, in the way we can control life or control people or control our situations. Maybe you, like Paul, have been good at, at keeping the rules your whole life. Uh, maybe you're a goody two-shoes. And, and you take a lot of pride in being a good person. Or maybe you find righteousness in a cause. The more zealous you are about your issue, the more righteousness you feel. And because you feel righteous about something, if someone doesn't buy into your cause or doesn't buy into enough, it gives you a chance to, to cast them aside or to push them down. Maybe they don't, they don't buy into your cause or your political party, your political candidate or your cultural worldview. Or maybe you've built a life of comfort and stability. You're living the American dream. You have a, a home and a family and savings and retirement and comfort. And I'm not saying all of these are bad, but what I am saying is that when you find your worth and security in these things, when you begin to judge the value of others based on whether they have them or not, your comfort becomes your destruction. 
A self-made, self-righteous life can take so many different forms, but when we build a life for ourselves apart from Jesus, we find that our worth and our rightness is wrong. More than that, we create for ourselves an anti-gospel life. We don't just sidestep the gospel a little bit. We become enemies of the gospel. But all of these things, no matter how good they are, something like a family or or, uh, the good things in life, or maybe it is sin, whatever you elevate in your righteousness are worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And that's what Paul was able to say. He says, don't take confidence in the flesh, take confidence in Jesus. If anybody had reason to have confidence, it was me. Look at this long, look at my resume. Yet, here's what he says in verse seven. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. So Paul moves from reflecting on his former life of right living to telling us of the great lesson he's learned. And here's the lesson he's learned in life. It was all worthless. It was all worthless. Is it very similar to King Solomon, right? It's all vanity. It's all vanity. All that he did, all that he was, all that he could earn in life was worthless compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him. I love what Paul does here in the text. He he compares everything else in life with dung. That's that's how the the CSB translated, dung. Uh, It's very kind for them to say that. In the NIV, it says uh, garbage. We don't really have a good word for this in English, but uh, later today, if, if you want to, you can turn to Deuteronomy 23. And in Deuteronomy 23, there's instructions for the Israelites to go out of the camp and to dig a hole and to do their business and to cover it up. That's what we're talking about. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That everything in life, com- when compared to Jesus, is dung. All that life has to offer, the most pleasurable sin, the most precious gift, the most beautiful experiences, these are all heaping piles of smelly human feces when we compare them to the beauty and the glory of knowing Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that the good gifts that God has given us are all evil or wicked. I think it's quite the contrary. Life is full of beautiful and amazing gifts. I was driving here this morning early, um, trying to get a cup of coffee. And I looked on my left as I was driving on the road and there's this beautiful sunrise pinks and blues and purples. And nothing could create that besides the the glory of God and pollution coming together, right? It's just a beautiful gift. So whether it's driving on the interstate and you're seeing a sunrise, or maybe it's a sunrise from the ocean or over the mountains. Maybe it's a a birth of a child or good food and good drink, coming together to laugh with friends and family after being stuck in your home for months. All of these are amazing gifts of God, but when we compare them with knowing Jesus, they seem worthless. What does that mean? They seem as if they have no value. No value. What this shows is the surpassing worth of our life with God. This doesn't mean that these things don't have value and they're not beautiful and they're not uh, necessary and they're not these amazing gifts of God. But when we 
lift them up and we compare the good gifts of of life with the glory and the beauty of Jesus. These things just fall away. Can you imagine? I remember um, when we had our daughter and I was that annoying dad who just talked about their kids all the time. I was showing you pictures, right? I was just so overwhelmed with the love I had for my daughter. It was like the greatest thing I could experience in life, right? But what Paul says is when I take my firstborn and, and the love and the passion I have for, for her and the rest of my kids, when I compare them with Jesus, they just wash away. They have no value. They mean nothing with the glory and beauty of Jesus washing over our life. But do we feel that way? When you look at and experience Jesus in your life, does it make all the good gifts of life wash away? And I can't say that. I confess to you today, I cannot say that, but I want to. I want to be able to live this life and I set my eyes on the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And not that those other things aren't valuable, not that I don't love those other things, but they just kind of fade away. They just kind of fade away into the background. And that's my prayer for you this morning. As you dig into the word of God for the rest of your life, as you fall on your face worshiping and getting to know Jesus, as you grow in your understanding of his glory and his goodness over your life, everything else begins to fade away. And that brings us to our our final point. What is the goal of life? What's the goal of life? Let's look back in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here, what what Paul is doing is he's he's transitioning from this this beautiful picture of of Jesus and the the secondary things of life. And he kind of gives us his life goal. The CSB actually says that. It says, my goal in life. And he gives three things, to know him to experience the the resurrection life and to share in his suffering, to identify with him in his death. So first of all, let's talk about what does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to know Jesus? At the risk of sounding simplistic, there is no greater goal in life than to know Jesus and be known by him. And if I were to boil down the Christian life into just a few words, I could say this. The goal of the Christian life is to, to know God, to grow to be like Jesus, and to tell others about him. This desire to know God is not an academic pursuit. It doesn't mean everyone has to go to seminary and learn the original languages. If you wanna do that, that's great. What Paul is talking about here is a pursuit of passion. To know Jesus means that we commit our lives to having an intimate, growing, passionate relationship with Jesus every day of our lives, every day of our lives. It means that when we wake up in the morning, our thoughts are filled with God. It means when we go to bed, our thoughts are filled with God. It means we wake up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, our thoughts are filled with God. Our life is filled with this growing passion for Jesus. Let me urge you to take this call to know Jesus seriously. Commit yourself to knowing Jesus through his word, through developing habits of daily prayer, through fellowshipping deeply with other believers. Knowing Jesus is not something we accomplish. It's not a goal as if uh, Paul arrived at it, but it's this uh, lifelong pursuit of growing to be like him, this sanctification in our lives. To be like Jesus and to know him is the very essence of the Christian life. But it doesn't just stop in knowing Jesus. It, it, there's a call to experience the power of his resurrection. This is more than just salvation. This is 
our very life with God. It's the power of the resurrection lived out in our lives. This is sanctification, growing to be like Jesus. This is the power that we are promised to overcome sin and experience the joy back in verse one. Remember verse one, rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord in the midst of suffering and sorrow and difficulty because we are experiencing the resurrection power. Now, I've sat with this text for a few weeks now, and I've, I've come to the conviction that many of us, including myself, we are not experiencing the resurrection life. The too often we settle for mediocrity in Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that's intentional. I'm just saying we do. But the call for us, the invitation for us to, to experience Jesus at full tilt, at, at full life. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 3, verse 16. I'll, I'll read this for us. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all of God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too heavy to fully understand, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes through God. Paul's giving instructions, this invitation, experience the resurrection life, experience the Christian life fully. You see, the resurrection life is life as the way that it was meant to be lived in the here and now. It's not just when we get to heaven, but we can experience it here. It's life fully awake to the realities of the kingdom of God. It means life with Jesus, powered by Jesus and overflowing with Jesus. And we can experience resurrection life as we grow to be like him. Are you experiencing the resurrection life now? It's not something that uh, it's j- not something just for the Pauls and the Eric Littles of the Christian life. It's available to all of us, all of us. The resurrection life is promised to every follower of Jesus. It allows us to kill sin in our life and experience joy no matter what we face. It allows us to pour out our lives for others and not expect anything in return. It allows us to experience joy in the midst of suffering and pain. That's what it means to live out the resurrection in your own life. In fact, one of Paul's goals, the last goal that we're going to talk about here is Paul wanted to be able to share in the sufferings of Jesus and to be like him in his death. Now, this may seem strange to us in the church today, specifically in the Western world. And I'm not intending to have any any shame or guilt on you. But this is an actual goal that Paul had and many Christians had uh, in the early church and throughout of history. But this would not have been a strange thing for them to consider. You see, the Christian life is the path of suffering. And not just here in in this specific text, but as you pull out from uh, all of the book of Philippians, there's a theme of suffering in the Christian life here. And then if you pull back out a little more from the New Testament, you see a theme of suffering. Not as if, man, suffering happens, this stinks, but it's actually a path that the Lord uses to grow us and his church. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. What Paul tells the Philippians in chapter one is the, the gift that has been given to you, church, is not only salvation, but suffering. How could Paul say that? 
How could Paul say that suffering itself was a gift? Suffering is a gift because when we suffer in the Christian life, we look like Jesus. When we live our life faithful in suffering, we are reflecting who Jesus is, what he has done, how he lived our life. As Christians, we need to firmly plant our feet and seek to be faithful, even flourish in the midst of suffering. Because when we do, when we, when we have joy, I'm not saying a fake smile or even happiness, but deeply rooted joy in the midst of suffering, when we do, we are reflecting the life of Jesus. And it reminds me of Eric Little, won a gold medal, broke the world record. He went back to Scotland. He was a hero, right? He could have done anything, gone anywhere, been anybody, but he chose to go back to China to be a missionary. He poured his life out there. He was a teacher. Um, He discipled men and women. And then when World War II hit, most missionaries left, but Eric decided to stay. Even his family had to leave, but his his mission agency asked him to stay and fill a, a needed role during this time of war and crisis. And very soon, Japan uh, had him and others arrested and put in an internment camp. So he was a prisoner of war in a war camp. The very end of his life, he brought love and encouragement to all those around him. When everyone else was being discouraged and their hope was falling away, he spoke the word of God into people's lives till his very last breath as he died from a brain tumor. Whether Eric was winning gold in the Olympics or he was dying in a war prison, Eric could say that everything in life, everything that he had, both the hard suffering pieces and the glorious gold medals, all of those things counted as nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And I'm not trying to elevate Eric Little or anyone else. I'm saying the life that Eric experienced through the resurrection is ours. It's ours. We can experience Jesus in this moment. And that's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.